This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please visit our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 2. One of the mainstays of the Christian story is the scene that Linus read about in Charlie Brown Christmas. How many of you have not watched it yet this year? Okay. You have a few days left. This is what Christmas is all about. This story. But underneath this historical event, we see that something bigger is even happening. And that is the inception of a gospel movement. Let me read the story and then we're going to dive into that. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. They had seen him. They spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. We're going to consider today three aspects to a gospel movement that's present in this very famous, well-known story. What I want to do today is try to show you That while this is the inaugural gospel movement, this story is the inaugural gospel movement, gospel movements still happen today, 
much like this one. Okay? Gospel movements still happen today much like this one. Three aspects to a gospel movement. Here they are. The agents of a gospel movement, the message of a gospel movement, and the proper responses to a gospel movement. Three aspects to a gospel movement. The agents of a gospel movement, the message of it, and the proper responses to it. First, the agents of a gospel movement. Now, Luke contrasts in this story two characters. There is, on the one hand, an unsuspecting power broker, and there, is an, there are unsuspecting commoners. And the, these two characters, Luke contrasts in the way he records the story. There's an unsuspecting power broker, and there's, there's an, there are unsuspecting commoners. Let's first look at the unsuspecting power broker. Caesar Augustus was also known as Gaius Octavius. He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. After the murder of Julius Caesar, Octavius was named the chief heir, and he ruled in a triumvirate with Mark Antony and Lepidus. In 27 BC, the Roman Senate ended up confirming Gaius Octavius as Caesar Augustus. Okay, so by the time this story unfolds, Caesar is the man with incredible power to rule as he sees fit. The decree that Augustus issues is for tax assessment purposes. So he's forcing Israelite residents to travel to their ancestral homelands to register there. So for Joseph and Mary, who is now in her third trimester, this meant a nearly 90-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, what gets lost in all of this is the prophecy regarding uh, the, the Messiah, where the Messiah would come from. Take a look at Micah, Old Testament book, Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Out of Bethlehem would come a ruler over Israel. This is a messianic prophecy. Augustus <clears throat> has no clue. He's helping to facilitate the inception of a gospel movement. To him, his decision to issue this decree is purely political. It's a policy decision. To him, it's unattached to anything related to Jesus and the gospel. For all we know, he's never heard of Mary and Joseph. He's never, certainly never heard of Jesus and the gospel. Those are foreign terms to him. Yet... His decision to levy this decree is laying the groundwork for a gospel movement. He is the unsuspecting power broker and an agent of a gospel movement. See, what's so profound about the Christmas story and why Luke is including the Roman angle to it is that the gospel moves outside the power structures of the world. It moves outside the power structures of the world, but... It's also moved along by the power structures of the world. This gospel movement is going to get launched underneath the nose of the most powerful man in the Mediterranean region. And unbeknownst to him, his decisions are helping to fulfill God's plans and purposes for it. This is where Christians, as Christians... 
We ought to be watching and monitoring the daily news headlines differently, differently than our non-Christian friends and family. Okay? Christian, you ought not to freak out about a decision Trump, Putin, Kim Jong-un makes. You ought not do that because of the Christmas story. It may be that something they do, a policy they have, is being used of God to relaunch another gospel movement. It may be that God is using their power, actions, decisions to lay the foundation for another inbreaking of the kingdom without them even knowing it. Over the years in ministry, I've been at times, along with other partners in ministry, been criticized for not speaking up on political matters from the pulpit. And I'm okay with that. And this is one reason why. The Christmas story is one reason why. The gospel moves outside the power structures of the world, and it simultaneously moved along by the power structures of the world. Now, here's what I want you to to think about here with me. Picture yourself being a power broker working inside the power structures of the world and simultaneously being opposed to the gospel. Think about that. Do you see that if you're a power broker working inside the power structures of the world and you don't want the gospel to move forward, do you see how you're damned if you do, damned if you don't? Do you see that in the story? For me, the Christmas story makes sense of why Jesus is later able to say the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The Christmas story, to me, makes sense of Jesus' words. Because the gospel moves outside the power structures of the world and simultaneously is moved along by the power structures of the world underneath the noses without them knowing it. Now, that's not to say it's not going to cost us anything. The decision Augustus made issuing this decree has caused a lot of pain for a lot of people. Not the least of which is Mary and Joseph. She's in her third trimester. She's walking or riding on a donkey for 90 miles. I have no idea what that's like. It's inconvenient at least, right? Uncomfortable at the least. Just because God is using an unsuspecting power broker to launch a gospel movement doesn't mean we won't feel any pain as a result of what decision that power broker makes. Just because God can launch a gospel movement underneath the noses of the most powerful people in the world doesn't guarantee we can just kick back in our easy chairs and enjoy the ride. We may have to do some inconveniences, some discomfort caused by a power broker's decisions. But likewise, the pain inflicted by a power broker's decision doesn't mean God has fallen asleep. God uses unsuspecting power brokers to ignite gospel movements without them even knowing it. That's the first agent of this gospel movement. There's another agent or agents of a gospel movement. That's the unsuspecting commoner. It's the shepherds. They're also unsuspecting. Just like Gaius, Octavius, Caesar, Augustus was was unsuspecting, the shepherds are unsuspecting. They're minding their own business. The gospel explodes into their lives. The shepherds were on the lower end of the social ladder. They they didn't possess social clout. 
They were commoners. They weren't dignitaries. In the mysterious sovereignty of God, he chooses them to be the first recipients of the news regarding the Savior's birth. These shepherds are not on Augustus's radar. They're nobodies. Augustus doesn't know about them. The shepherds were never front page news. They're commoners, but God launches a gospel movement through them. This is ordinarily how God works, and this should be encouraging to us. Most of us are not power brokers. Most of us are commoners who fly under the radar of power brokers. God has big plans for us, through us, to ignite gospel movements. People like us, ordinary commoners, carry gospel movements along. And we do so in simple ways. In 1857, Jeremiah Lanfear, a commoner businessman in New York City, started a weekly prayer meeting. In preparation for this prayer meeting, he had distributed written notices throughout many of New York City's businesses, inviting anyone interested to attend every Wednesday from noon to one. At 12 noon, on September 23rd, 1857, Lanfear opened the door and he went to his seat to await the response to his invitation. Five minutes went by. Nobody appeared. Lanfear paced the room in a conflict of fear and faith. Ten minutes elapsed. Still no one was there. Fifteen minutes, Lanfear was still alone. Twenty minutes, twenty-five minutes, thirty. And then at 12.30 p.m., a step was heard on the stairs, and the first person appeared. Then another and another until six people were present at the prayer meeting. And it began. Two weeks later, two weeks later, on Wednesday, October 7th, there were 40 intercessors praying. Thus, in the first week of October, 1857, it was decided to hold a prayer meeting daily instead of weekly. Within six months, 10,000 businessmen were gathering daily for prayer in New York. And within two years, a million converts were added to the American churches. Undoubtedly, the greatest revival in New York's colorful history was sweeping the city. And it was such an order that made the whole nation curious about it. There was no fanaticism. There was no hysteria. Simply the faithful actions of a commoner. God works macroly and microly to bring about gospel movements. Augustus' decree was national news, front page news, the leading story on the six o'clock news. Everybody heard about it. 
That's the event God is using to lay the groundwork for a gospel movement. He works macroly, but he also works microly. He appears to a group of shepherds in the middle of nowhere under the radar of the powers that be. The gospel explodes into their lives, which causes them to spread the word. A gospel movement was born. These are the agents of a gospel movement. Let's look secondly at the message of a gospel movement. What's the message of it? We know the agents, the principal players involved in a gospel movement. What's the message of a gospel movement? The core content of a gospel movement is contained in the angel's words to the shepherds. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. The grammatical linkage among the terms good news, great joy, and Savior is unmistakable. It's worth writing down. Grammatical linkage between the terms good news, great joy, and Savior is unmistakable. The core content of the angel's announcement, the core content of a gospel movement, the message of a gospel movement, concerns, first of all, a Savior. A Savior has been given to you. There's a lot happening in those simple words. A Savior has been given to you. The nature of a gift says something about what the giver thinks of you or the needs you have. The nature of a gift says something about you or the, 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 the needs that the giver perceives that you have. Tim Keller was ruminating on this. He writes this, imagine opening a present on Christmas morning from a friend and it's a dieting book. Then you take off another ribbon and wrapper and you find it's another book from another friend entitled Overcoming Selfishness. He asked the question, what do your friends think of you? Clearly, your friends think you're fat and obnoxious. <laughs> the nature of the gift says something about what the giver thinks your problem is. I have firsthand experience of this growing up. Our family was gathered around the dining room table to celebrate my mom's birthday. Tradition of the Danesburg family, birthday, uh, uh, birthday gets to pick, the birthday person gets to pick the meal and the dessert. And uh, so we, we eat, uh, we uh, eat the dessert, and then we have present, present time, gift time, right? So, uh, you know, the kid, we were young at the time, so we were given mom our cards and our, our gifts. And then dad had his present for her. It was too big to wrap. Too big to wrap. Instead, he had draped a blanket over it. He went down to the bedroom, hauled it down to the kitchen dining room, and set it on the floor. My mom's eyes were wide with anticipation. She pulled the blanket off. A brand new vacuum cleaner. She looked at it for two seconds and then ran off to the bedroom with a trail of tears left behind. What's one gift I've never given my wife for her birthday? <laughs> What's the message the giver is sending to the receiver through the gift? Your house is messy, clean it up. Here comes the angel and announces a gift has been given to humanity. The gift, a savior. 
What does it say about the problem we have or the needs we have? Don Carson, reflecting on this, said this, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and he sent us a savior. Our chief problem is not economic. It's not entertainment, it's not political, it's not physical. Our chief problem involves sin that we can't fix on our own. Our chief problem is our alienation from God that sin causes. Our chief problem is the spiritual death that sin brings. We need a savior. This is the message of a gospel movement. There can be no gospel movement today if Jesus is never talked about. If there is going to be a gospel awakening or reawakening, Jesus must take center stage, not primarily as teacher or exemplar, but as savior. Now closely linked in the text with the gift of a savior is this term good news. How does the gift of a savior become good news for us? Jesus is the solution to our sin problems, our alienation from God problems, our death problems. And it's not that Jesus has come into our world to show us how to fix those things on our own. He's come to fix the problems for us. That's the difference between news and advice. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. Jesus doesn't come into our world to show us how to live in such a way as to have eternal life. No, that's advice on how to live in the future. Jesus comes into the world, lives a perfect life for us, and dies the death we should have died for us. This is news. It's information. This is the good news the angel says will bring great joy. This is is the message of a gospel movement. The message of a gospel movement is not advice about how to live in the future. The message of a gospel movement is news about something that has already transpired. Jesus, a savior, lives the perfect life for us and dies our death for us to bring us to God. The message of a gospel movement is good news. News. Good news. Now think about the power of news for a minute. Think about the power of good news. Imagine prisoners of war held behind barbed wire in a camp with little food and filthy conditions near the end of the Second World War. On the outside of the fence, the captors are free and go about their business as though they don't have a care. Inside the fence, the captured soldiers are thin hollow-eyed, unshaven, and some are dirty. Some die each day. Then somehow a shortwave radio is smuggled into the barracks. There's a connection with the outside world and the progress of the war. Then one day, the captors on the outside of the fence see something very strange. 
Inside the fence, the weak, dirty, unshaved soldiers are smiling, laughing. A few who have the strength give a whoop and they throw tin pans into the air. What makes this so strange to everyone outside the fence is that nothing has changed. These soldiers are still in captivity. They still have little food and water and many are still sick and dying. But what the captors don't know is that what these soldiers do have is news. The enemy lines have been broken through. The decisive battle of liberation has been fought. And the liberating troops are only miles away from the camp. Freedom is imminent. This is the difference news makes. Christians have heard the news that Christ has come into the world and fought the decisive battle to defeat Satan and death and sin and hell. The war will soon be over. There's no longer any doubt as to who will win. Christ will win. And he will liberate all those <clears throat> who have put their hope in him. Friends, we have the most exhilarating news anyone could possibly hear. Good news of a Savior who has defeated sin, death, and Satan. This news is of such a nature that it's bound to launch a gospel movement. It can't help but ignite revival. It's good news. So third, what are, what are the proper responses <clears throat> to a gospel movement? What are the proper responses to a gospel movement? There's three of them. Um, I was faithful to abide by the rules of preaching. <clears throat> they all start with P. You're welcome. Proper response to a gospel movement, number one is praising. Notice what happens in the story. A single angel speaks to the shepherds the message of the gospel and the Savior's birth. And after speaking the gospel message, a multitude of the angelic entourage joins the angel in a corporate declaration of praise to God. One commentator says that the angels naturally are responding to the message that was proclaimed. That is, this should be the natural outflow of a message like this. The corporate praise given to God. <clears throat> but what if there's more going on here than that? What if the angel choir and their song of praise was necessary for the shepherds to fully get it? What if the song of the angelic choir was necessary for the, for the shepherds to fully understand the magnitude of what they had just heard? What if the praises of God's people 
in response to the message of a savior are actually a part of evangelizing the nations. What if this singing of God's praises is meant to accompany the gospel message? One without the other is like peanut butter without the jelly. By the way, you may have noticed that we're spending more time singing after the message than we have in the past? You know why that is? This story from Luke 2 is one of many examples of why that is. The angel choir doesn't kick into gear until after the message of the gospel has been proclaimed. Worship is responsive. Praise is a response to a message. Personally, my hope and prayer for you is that our time of worship after the message is unusually potent in your life because of it. First response, proper response to a gospel movement is praising. Second, it's proclaiming. After the angels leave, the shepherds dart down to Bethlehem. When they see Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, the text says this. They... The shepherds made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. What did they make known? Go ahead. What did they make known? What does the text say they made known? The saying. What is the saying? The angel's message, the message of a gospel movement, good news of a Savior that brings great joy. Notice the shepherds did not share their testimony. They made known the saying the angel had given them. Sharing your testimony is fine, but sometimes that does not qualify as proclaiming the gospel. Your testimony is not the same thing as the gospel. Your testimony may include aspects of the gospel, but your testimony is not a perfect overlap of the gospel. The shepherds made known the saying concerning the birth of a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A proper response to a gospel movement involves the proclaiming of that specific message. Sometimes in our world today, we feel pressured to have to clarify and defend God and defend the gospel. And I completely understand there's a place for that. There's a place to be crafty and winsome in our cultural engagement. Sometimes I think we try too hard. And we don't do enough of what the shepherds did. Just make known the saying. So here's my call to action this week. Some of you have an incredible social media presence. Sometime this week, before Christmas, can you use your social media presence to make known the simple message of the gospel? Don't be lengthy. Be gracious. Be simple. Be gentle. Some of you have blogs with a substantial readership. Make known the simple message of the gospel for your readers. Some of you have clout within groups. Make known the simple message of the gospel to them. Some of you have a neighbor you, really, you know well. Take them out for coffee. Make known the simple message of the gospel to them. Proclaiming the simple message of the gospel is a proper response to the message of the gospel. Third, pondering. Okay. Praising, proclaiming, and pondering. Proper responses to a gospel movement. Praising, proclaiming, and pondering. Mary treasured, the text says, Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. 
And so what has happened? The shepherds got the message. They came running to Bethlehem. They see Mary, Joseph, and the baby, and they make known the saying the angel had given them. Mary's hearing this. And then she treasures up all these things and she ponders them in her heart. These words that Luke uses are very technical with specific definitions. Here's what's going on in her life. There is ongoing contemplation going on in response to the shepherd's report. In Mary, there is ongoing contemplation in response to the shepherd's report. She is trying to put her thoughts together into an understandable whole. She's mulling it over. She's doing deep thinking. In a fast-paced, always-something-to-do society, sometimes I wonder if space to deeply ponder is crowded out. The gospel, listen, the gospel is not like fun-sized candy bars. Incidentally, there's nothing fun about a candy bar that size. <laughs> the gospel is not like a fun-sized candy bar. You know, it's, it's two bites maybe one, a few chews, and it's, and it's devoured. Okay? That's not the gospel. The gospel is like hard candy. It's like hard candy. It's not meant to be chewed a few times and swallowed. You need to suck on it. You need to roll it around in your mouth. You need to work it over. If you try to eat hard candy the way you do a Snickers bar, not only will you be visiting your dentist the next day, you'll actually miss out on the full enjoyment of that hard candy. The gospel is the same way. And Mary is showing us that. So praising, proclaiming, and pondering are the proper responses to a gospel movement. I want to close with one additional thought. And that's this. I don't think Luke is recording this just to show us what the proper responses to a gospel movement are. I think Luke is trying to get something else done by telling us these details. He's not just showing us that praising, proclaiming, and pondering are proper responses to a gospel movement. I think he's showing us that praising, proclaiming, and pondering are the ingredients needed for the inception of another gospel movement. You want to see another gospel movement take place. These things, these three things need to be a part of our lives as individuals daily and our corporate gatherings. Praising, proclaiming, and pondering is the way a gospel movement is proliferated. And I don't know about you, but I'd love to see that happen. I'd love to see that happen in our church. That God would start with us and bring us back to this. And then he would use our church to reach this county to see people come to the place of praising, proclaiming, and pondering the gospel themselves. And God's not too small or limited to use that to ignite something nationally or globally. Let's pray toward that end. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes. Loving Father, where these practices are lagging in our lives, I pray that you would prompt us to see them rejuvenated. Prompt us by reminding us of the simple message of the gospel. Jesus came into our world not to show us how to live a good life, but to live a perfect life in our place. And then die the death our sins rightly deserved. 
The gospel is good news because it's a message of grace. We have merited nothing from you, but yet through Christ you have given us everything. And I pray, Lord, that that would be the fuel for our praising, proclaiming, and pondering. And Father, I pray for a reawakening in our congregation and our community to the beauty and power of the gospel message. Use us commoners to make known its simple message. God, we pray that you would break through to deliver this good news to those who desperately need it. We thank you for it. We lift our voices in loud adoration and praise in response to this good news now, to the glory of Christ. Amen. Amen.